The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning. So, we are still in uh, Genesis chapter 4, and I will be actually backing up a little from the youth group's last session on this. Uh, We will still be talking about Cain and Abel and their descendants. In chapter 4, we found that Cain had murdered his brother Abel, revealing to us he was not a true worshiper of God, and he was not the promised seed that Eve had hoped he would be. No, instead of being the promised seed of the woman who would destroy the serpent... He was the serpent's offspring, attempting to destroy the woman's seed. Eve wasn't the only one who God said would have a seed. In Genesis 3.15, God said to the serpent, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Satan has his own offspring. Jesus even told the Pharisees, these highly religious men, in John 8:44, ye of your, ye of are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Satan had been a murderer in the garden as he led Adam and Eve into sin and death, and Cain followed his father in his teachings into killing his brother. Even after God had counseled Cain to beware of the sin laying in wait for him at his door, in chapter 4, verse 7, God uh, God told Cain that sin was at his door, the idea being that it was ready to pounce on him. And its desire was for him, meaning its desire was to control him, to dominate over him. It's the same language that God used to describe Eve's new sinful desire to lead and control her husband in chapter 3. And in the New Testament, we get a clearer look, not only at what was at Cain's door, but who. In 1 John 3, verses 10 through 12, we read, In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither neither he that loveth not his neighbor. For this is the message that ye have heard from the beginning, that ye should love one another, not as Cain, who, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. Wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Satan wasn't just doing this for fun and games when he tempted Cain to kill Abel. The serpent heard God speak of the seed of the woman that would destroy him, and so from the very beginning, he was trying to stop God from bringing about this promised seed into the world. In Revelations chapter 12, we see the imagery of a woman in labor, ready to give birth. And we know this woman is Israel. It's not Mary. It's not the church. The woman is Israel due to the sun, moon, 12 stars on her head, which is a clear reference to Joseph's dream in Genesis. But even before... Before the woman gives birth, the dragon is there, ready to devour the child. He's waiting to see who this child is so he can capture him and destroy him. That was Satan's plan from the start. He tried again and again to stop the seed from being born. He tried to stop it by killing Abel and banishing Cain. He drew humanity into great and mighty wickedness in Noah's day, leading to the flood. And in Exodus, we read that he, uh, he led Pharaoh into killing all the male 
uh, male newborns in Israel. And over and over, through every scheme of his, God always prevailed. We will eventually come to chapter 5 of Genesis, which is a record of God preserving a line of men who would father the seed that he had promised Adam and Eve and the rest of humanity. But we'll get back to our chapter today. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, it describes Cain killing his brother. And notice that Moses has already established who Cain is. He is uh, who Abel is. He is Cain's brother. But in verse 8, he reiterates this twice in one, in one verse. He reiterates two times that Abel is his brother. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up in, against Abel, his brother, and slew him. After killing Abel, Cain is given his punishment from God. The ground had already been cursed by God after Adam had sinned, but now for Cain it would be double cursed. It would no longer grow food for him at all, since it was the ground he had shed his brother's blood on. So God takes away Cain's occupation as a tiller of the ground. He would now have to be a vagabond, a wanderer, roaming about trying to find food. In Genesis 4.13, it says, And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that anyone who findeth me shall slay me. It might be possible that Cain may have started feeling guilty over what he had done. That is possible. The severity of the punishment may have brought that into perspective for him, what he had actually done. But we should understand that even if he felt guilty, there is a difference between feeling guilty and being repentant. The feeling of shame, guilt, and regret are supposed to signal to us that we have sinned. It's supposed to help us acknowledge our sin and lead us to an understanding that we need a redeemer, someone who can forgive us of our sin. But that loud and heavy message often goes unanswered in the heart of the unregenerate. We see this type of guilt in Matthew, this guilt without repentance. Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 through 5. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, that is, when he had betrayed Jesus, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself, and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priest and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, Who, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. We might look at Judas here and think he was truly repentant. He had a great deal of guilt over what he had done. But he did not seem to exercise any saving faith in Christ here. He may have felt very guilty. His conscience was pricking his mind. But he doesn't seem to go to God to ask for forgiveness. He doesn't seem to have that kind of faith in God. And instead of going to God to seek redemption, he instead tries to find a way to escape his guilt by hanging himself. He should have known the stories of the Old Testament of King David, how he murdered Uriah, and God forgave him. Judas should have sought the same type of repentance. And this is exactly what people who have guilt without repentance do today, don't they? They run. They do what Judas did, and they do what Adam did. Instead of confronting a great sin of theirs and confronting the shame they've accrued, they run and hide when the Lord comes looking for them. 
They sin against a friend, and they feel terrible, but they're too caught up in their own humiliation to actually humble themselves and ask for forgiveness. Or as I've, as I've seen throughout my life so far, I'm still young, but I've seen it quite a few times, where someone sins against their church and they feel the shame. And instead of humbling themselves under God's grace to work with the body to recover, instead they run away and find a new church. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. So although Cain here might have, have, might have felt sorrow, it was not a God-oriented sorrow to salvation. It is only a worldly sorrow concerned about his own humiliation and his own punishment, not the offense he has committed against God. And just to prove that, we can just read what he said again. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. What's greater than you can bear, Cain? Is it the shame of killing your brother? Is it that you will no longer enjoy the presence of your maker? Is that what's so great you can't bear it? Cain said, Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face I shall, shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. It's quite a contrast from another person in Scripture that we just mentioned who was not only a murderer but an adulterer. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband murdered. And the Lord rebuked David through the prophet Nathan, saying in 2 Samuel, You killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but this, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And is that what... Now, I'm sure that David was very distressed by that, but when we, when we read Psalm 51, that doesn't seem to be what's primarily on his mind. In Psalm 51, this is probably written after he committed these sins with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. In Psalm 51, David's concern is, Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. David's concern was to not be cast away from the presence of the Lord, but Cain here, or David's concern was not to be cast away from the presence of the Lord, but Cain here, he's fine with it. He's more concerned about being slain by other men. This is the polar opposite. David's reaction is the polar opposite of Cain's reaction when God confronted him. Cain had ignored God's counsel about sin crouching at his door, and when he is asked about Abel's whereabout, he lies to God and says, I know not, am I my brother's keeper? In verse 9 of chapter 4. It's amazing how cruel humans can be. Not only did Cain kill his brother, but here he now mocks him. Am I my brother's keeper? It's an interesting choice of words. You see, Cain found God's question ironic. From Cain's perspective, God had just asked Cain, a tiller, where his servant Abel, a keeper, is at. 
Cain's response is, sorry, God, I'm just a poor tiller of the ground. I don't know where Abel is. Am I supposed to be the keeper of the keeper? That's exactly what Abel's occupation was, a keeper of sheep. And when uh, Cain responds, am I my brother's keeper, <clears throat> God essentially stops trying to question Cain and gets right to it. And God said, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. Arrogant Cain falls to pieces overhearing his punishment. He's more concerned about being killed than being banished from God's presence. Nonetheless, God still had mercy on him. In verse 15, And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. We don't know exactly what this mark was. In the Hebrew, there is room to say that this was either something that was actually attached to Cain, or it was just a sign separate from Cain that was just very visible for everyone. I'm more inclined to think this was actually something on Cain, so that it would be unmistakable who he was when people found him. And we read in verse 16, <clears throat> And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, on the east of Eden. Things like poetry and wordplay can be difficult to translate into the English from the original biblical languages because wordplay is often used when words sound the same, but when you translate those words into another language, they don't sound the same anymore. And that's somewhat what we have here with the word vagabond and the land of Nod. Vagabond is Wanad, and the land of Nod is Nod, N-A-D. And so they're essentially the same word, meaning the wanderer was banished to the land of wandering. We don't know whether or not this land of Nod got its name before Cain went there, or if it was named in hindsight after Cain went there. Um, we're not really told that, so I don't think it's too important. And we are told that he built the city of Enoch. And he builded a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And as John Sephardi uh, points out, the Hebrew verb here for build is more like he was engaged in building. So it seems that Cain started to build a city, but had to wander again. So he left it for Enoch to finish, which may explain why he named it after Enoch. And then we come to Cain's descendants in verse 18. And unto Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begat Mahujel. And Mahujel begat Methusel, and Methusel begat Lamech. Enoch means dedicated or initiative, and he begat Irad. Irad means man city, or man of the city. So he was probably born in the city of Enoch and helped to build it. And Irad begat Mahujel, and this is one of those names that can have very different meanings depending on how it's parsed. It could either mean smitten of God, 
or it could actually mean Elohim makes me live, which will give you a very different perspective of what's going on in these people's minds. If it means smitten of God, then it would suggest that Cain's line, all of Cain's line continued in their wickedness. If Mahujel is to be understood as Elohim makes me live, or by Elohim I have life, it, would, it may imply that Irad was actually a saved man, which isn't entirely out of the question. Irad was the same generation of Enos, which is when men began, began to call on the name of the Lord. So it is possible that Irad was one of those men. But if, even if Irad was saved, that uh, family instruction and role model was lost very quickly. And Mahujel begat Methusel, meaning man of Elohim or man of prayer. And then Mahujel begat Lemek. Lemek means strong youth, warrior, or conqueror. So again, even if some people in Cain's line were saved, it doesn't seem to last very long. Based on the names given, we can get a very small glimpse of what was going on in their minds. And we can see that Methusel doesn't seem to value the qualities of acknowledging Elohim or acknowledging prayer. Instead, he values physical strength. And he makes, names his son Lemek and raises him to live up in accordance with his name. And we read in verse 19, And Lemek took unto him two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Lemek is recorded as not only the first polygamist, but the very first person to pervert sexuality in marriage. God was abundantly clear that two shall be one flesh, not any more. Lemek must have been a, and we can also tell that Lemek must have been a very mighty man, considering his boasting in the next few verses. And he must have been a fairly wealthy man also to be able to provide for two wives and extra children. He probably could have accumulated his wealth through his strength. But this does bring up the question, doesn't God, why didn't God seem to explicitly condemn polygamy in the Old Testament? That's a question that seems to get asked a lot. Well, I think Lemek here is... <laughs> an example that God did not approve of polygamy. This is your first role model here, is Lemek. John Sephardi commenting on how did God view polygamy in the Old Testament? What did the Old Testament teach about polygamy? He says, Adam and Eve were monogamous. So were Isaac and Rebekah, and they are often used as a model for Jewish weddings. And the only survivors of the flood were four monogamous couples. Furthermore, the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, singular, also presupposes the idea that there is only one wife. God also forbid kings from having many wives in Deuteronomy 17.17. 17. We can also look at the way the Old Testament keeps portraying polygamous relationships. It's never in a good light. We can look at the trouble when Israel's kings disobeyed, including the deadly sub sibling rivalry between David's sons and his different wives. We can also look at Solomon's hundreds of wives and how they led him into idolatry. In the New Testament, polygamy is expressly forbidden from ch for church elders, and it's not just for church elders. Paul also says each man should have his own wife and each wo woman her own husband. 
Paul goes on then to explain marital duties in terms that only make sense in a one-man, one-woman relationship. But what about the godly men who are polygamous? Well, as we've already discussed, we already mentioned David and uh, Solomon. It doesn't seem to work out well for them. What about Abraham, for example? Well, Abraham and Sarah would have been monogamous if it wasn't just for that one uh, low point in their faith where they uh, brought Hagar into the relationship. And again, that is not exactly at a point where Abraham was at a high in his faith. <laughs> that was a very low point. Jacob wanted only Rachel, but was tricked into marrying her older sister, Leah. Over and over, the Old Testament, while God does not explicitly condemn polygamy, one, he does explicitly confirm uh, monogamy, and any example of polygamy is always in a negative light. Why did God seem to allow it then? John Safari, um, his guess is that God may have viewed polygamy in the same way he viewed divorce. It's not his intention. It's not what he wanted. But due to the hardness of their hearts, God did establish certain laws in the, um, through Moses, saying, if he taketh another white, then he is to fulfill these duties. And it's always with the conditional if. Never is it told that he must. Also, God put a number of obligations on husbands towards their additional wives, which would have discouraged polygamy. And it's also no wonder that after the Babylonian exile, monogamy was essentially just the rule. Polygamy kind of faded out after that. But again, we find Lemek here as being the poster child for this type of relationship, and it's not a good one. We also come to Lemek's children. <coughs> In verse 20, And Ada bare Jabel, he was the father of such as dwell in tents, and of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal, he was the father of all such as handle the harp and organ. And Zillah, she also bare Tubal-king, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. And the sister of Tubal-king was Nabah. I wrote an article a few months ago, I believe it was September, maybe August, somewhere around there, uh, discussing the intelligence of ancient man. Uh, secular theories view ancient man as just what we would call a Neanderthal, just completely stupid, lacks any basic reasoning patterns and abilities. That's not how the Bible views them. Evolution shows man as slowly evolving into Homo sapiens, and once they were Homo sapiens, through long ages, they slowly acquired reasoning abilities and understood mathematics. The Bible portrays mankind as being perfectly made from the beginning with language, reasoning, and keen observation skills. On the sixth day, and this is an excerpt from my article, on the sixth day, God told Adam to examine each of the beasts of the field, which isn't every animal on earth. He says the beast of the field, and name them as he saw fit. And Adam had to so Adam had to examine the characteristics of each animal that was brought before him, and he had to name them accordingly. He had to name them either based on the way they looked, their behaviors, maybe something they resembled in his environment, something that would be a fitting name for them. In other words, Adam had, to f had a formalized language, logic, and he systematized his observations. The idea that ancient man was just a grunting caveman is a fairly novel idea. It didn't come about until about 150 years ago. 
I'll go ahead and skip down. Jubal, or Jabel. Jabel, it says, was the founder, the father. Father here doesn't mean the father in terms of biology. It means father in terms of founder or originator. Jabel was the founder of those who dwell in tents and who keep cattle or livestock. So he established the nomadic lifestyle. <clears throat> Some people wonder, well, how can he be the father of those who keep cattle? Isn't Abel the one who first kept sheep? That's true. Abel was a shepherd. He was a keeper of sheep. But the word used to describe uh, Abel's animals is, and I don't speak Hebrew, it's son, <laughs> T-S-O apostrophe N, and includes sheep and goat. While Jabel kept livestock or cattle, the meaning would include bovines, camels, donkeys, sheep, and goats. It's a wider range of animals. Also, being that Jabel is expanding out and has others working with him, I think that's kind of implied, would eventually have others working with him, he may have figured out how to herd and breed these varieties of animals in larger quantities. He understood how to best organize them, how to keep track of them, how to feed them all, how to make them move where he wanted them to move, and studied their strengths and weaknesses for their work efforts, how to use them for work. It's also possible that he may have also been quite the businessman, traveling around with all these animals. Other people may want some of those. He may want to start trading his animals for the services of others. He could have traded his donkeys uh, as beasts of burden, his goats for their milk, and horses and camp, possibly horses, and their camels for travel. He could have traded his animals for instruments from Jubal and metal tools from Tubalcane. Jubal, we read, was the father of all such as handled the harp and organ. Now, Jubal's instrument was not quite as uh, complex as harps and organs. It's more likely it was something like a, a lyre, a more, kind of like a handheld harp almost. You ever seen those? Something a little more basic. <clears throat> uh, because it's only when lyres started being developed that harps would originate after that. We also read he made organs. Now, again, that's probably not as complex as we know it today, but it was probably some sort of combination of reeds and pipes. However primitive they may have been, these two, these two types of instruments laid the foundation for the development of music and more complex instruments. Both stringed and wind instruments owe their origin to Jubal's inventions. And could you imagine trying to make a liar without any knowledge of anyone else doing it before you. Just trying to find materials around, string it together, tune it, figuring out how to play it and make music with it. It takes a lot of effort. And then we read of Tubalcane. Read in the Bible that Tubalcane was an instructor in all artificers of brass and iron. We ought to consider everything that goes into making uh, metal tools. It's quite a laborious process. First, this involves mining or extracting metals from the earth. And once you've um, gotten the metals from the earth, you need to separate it from the dirt as much as you can. Second, there is more preparation to be done by creating a smelting furnace that can get the metal hot enough in order to be able to manipulate and forge it. But it also must be constructed so that the heat that escapes doesn't hurt the smelter. Proper tire would have also had to have been invented in order to guard the smelter from the burns. Third, proper fuel is needed, and charcoal is 
pretty much the best use for heating furnaces and getting the heat up. Ancient Hittites used to do that. Fourth, the smelter needs to have a way to control the heat in the furnace in case it starts getting too hot or too cold. It needs to be able to have a way to keep adding charcoal to the furnace and also needs to be able to control the airflow of it as well. Controlling the airflow and adding air may have been done through bellows of some sort. And the metal process, if we're going on ancient Hittites and how they did it, the uh, smelting process was about six to eight hours long. <laughs> took quite a while. Also fifth, they would need a way to compress the heated iron and beat it into shape while paying attention to when the iron needs to be reheated. It's not just... <laughs> When we read of things like Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain, these are not stupid men. These men are very intelligent. While they may have not have made as many discoveries as we have made today, lack of knowledge should not be equivocated to unintelligent. We also read of a strange woman named Nema. It says, the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. And it's quite rare for girls to be named in the genealogies of Genesis or the history um, in the pre-flood world, only four women were named. One was Eve, and the other three were all in Lemek's family. <laughs> Ada, Zillah, and Nema. We're not, exactly, we're not actually told what Nema did, but her name means pleasant, graceful, gorgeous. And it says she was the sister of Tubal-Cain. And so my best guess... <laughs> is that she may have been the mother of jewelry or some, figured out some way to beautify herself, to decorate herself more. It's not too hard to imagine that she may have used some of the metals to make earrings or rings or bracelets and things like that. <clears throat> These men remind me of modern society and our modern inventions. Cain and Lemek's family were brilliant, but there's no mention of the worship of God among them. And I see much of our own culture in the likes of these men and in this woman. We have reached a new age with our technology and inventions. Our industry has moved beyond herding animals for trade. We now have moved to the much more convenient uh, paper currency. And we now have massive trucks as our beasts of burden. Instead of portable tents, we now have mobile homes <laughs> with running water, heater, dishwashers, laundry, washers and dryers, refrigerators, bathrooms connected to sewers or septic tanks, and bright lights that turn on with the flick of a switch. Our music has also been extensively explored, whether you like it or not. <laughs> the, with the push of a button, modern society listens to the sounds of bluegrass, country, dubstep, metal, rock and roll, rap, soul, pop, gospel hymns, and entire orchestras. We now have many elaborate programs of study to school people in the arts of music, acting, and storytelling, and we even have brand new art forms like photography and cinematography. Tubal-Cain's advancements <coughs> in metallurgy are paralleled by Bill Gates and Steve Jobs with their inventions of computers that can store, process, and organize information with incredible speed and precision. This has allowed us to automatize much of our work labors. The most popular and significant example of computers helping businesses was the development of spreadsheet software. <laughs> that is what took spreadsheet software. The first one was called VisiCalc. It took computers from being a nerd's hobby into being a mandatory business tool. VisiCalc was considered the killer app. That's actually where the name originated. 
the killer app that moved computers into the mainstream. <coughs> it really is astounding what God had intended for Adam and Eve's children to invent, discover, and to make use of over the process of time. For example, in my pocket right now, I currently have access to an automatic language translator, an instant messaging tool, a GPS system, my bank account, <laughs> around 3.4 million books on Amazon Kindle, 43 million songs on iTunes, and 5 billion videos on YouTube. All of that is in my pocket. And what amazes me more is that our society has had more ease of access to Christian materials and teachings than any other generation. And we have had more freedom to practice those teachings than any other nation in history. And yet we have become far less Christian, despite the ease of access to all these wonderful teachings and resources. Even Christians have become less Christian and substantially less knowledgeable about the Bible. Why is that? I think it's because we've gotten this subtle impression that we don't need God as much as we needed, we used to. We think all the knowledge we need in the world is at our fingertips. If I have a question about life, I'll just Google what the wise men of the age have to say. All the healing we need we can get from modern medicine and surgery, so why bother praying about it? And all the joy I want is at my fingertips. I can just pick a song or a book or a movie to watch to enjoy. And this is the folly I find in many modern churches to try and entice the, the degenerate into their churches by using concerts and sensational music programs and preach about prosperity. They have all those things already. You don't need to try and entice them into the church by offering what they already have. What they need is to hear that they are sinners in need of a redeemer. That is something that no wise man in this world will tell them, and it's not something that will be made known to them by the world. But then we come to Lemek's boasting in verse 23 and 24. <clears throat> and Lemek, and this is a poem, by the way, uh, each, there's a verse like, um, and Lemek said unto his wives, Ada and Zerah, hear my voice. And that's paralleled by, ye wives of Lemek, hearken unto me. You can kind of see that pattern as you go through it. And Lemek said unto his wives, Ada and Zerah, hear my voice. Ye wives of Lemek, hearken unto my speech. For I have slain a man to my wounding, and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lemek seventy-sevenfold. Kent Hughes commentated on this, saying, Lemek's song must be the woman, these woman's worst dream. <laughs> the reference to, the, to his wives in this violent context points to the worst outworkings of the judgment oracle in Genesis 3.16. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Men would no longer lead their wives through servant leadership that Christ displayed. Rather, many men lead their wives through this, brutal, this brutish way of Lemek. Lemek did not lead... Oh, I already said. <laughs> Ada and Zela suffered the humiliation of polygamy in their marriage to this brutal, remorseless male who ruled over them. This poem is not about a man who is scared for defending himself. Some people have actually thought that this is what it is, that Lemek is somehow scared. You know, he acted in self-defense. He, he wound up killing someone. Now he's worried about what's going to happen to him. That's not what's going on here. Lemek is boasting in the form of song. 
The man and the young man in verse 23 are one and the same. It is a yilid. It is a mere lad. A young man. Probably around 13 to 15 years old. And what does Lamech say he did to this young man, this lad? He murdered him. Why? Because he wounded him. But wound here is not a cut. Wound here is a very minor wound, nothing more than a slight bruise. So for a slight bruise, Lemek is boasting that he took vengeance 77-fold and murdered him for it. This is a violent man. God's vengeance on um, Cain for killing Abel was sevenfold, meaning the perfect measure or the appropriate crime. But Lemek threatened that anyone who wounds him, even a minor wound, he will take vengeance 77-fold, a massive amount of vengeance. And based on the, uh, the violence we see in the world of Genesis 6, a few gen generations away from Lemek, we can infer that this is the type of man that would <laughs> cover the earth in Genesis 6 of Noah's day. Lemek, Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain, I think, are some of the mighty men of old, the men of renown that Moses talked about in Noah's day. I don't think it's exclusive to them, but I think they're part of it. I do want to finish up here. So a narcissistic warrior poet named Lemek, with his intelligent and resourceful children and the rest of Cain's family, began to build up civilization, and they grew their great city of Enoch. And they dedicated themselves to building up their own names. As I've already said, Lemek, Jubal, Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal are the mighty men of old and the men of renown. But what about the other descendants of Adam? What happened to them? We read that God had a replacement for righteous Abel after Cain killed him. <clears throat> His name was Seth, meaning appointed. Because, Eve said, God had appointed another seed in place of Abel. In Genesis 5.3, we can also see that Adam must have agreed with that, as it's also uh, Seth's name is also attributed to Adam being the one who named him not just Eve. She must have reasoned that Cain was the promised seed, that Cain could not have been the promised seed, uh, nor could he be the father of the lion for the seed. And the seed could not come through Abel because he was now dead. Therefore, when Adam was 130 years old, God gave them a new son, a new seed that would father the promised Savior. And Seth also had his own son, which he named Enosh. The Greek is Enos, the Hebrew is Enosh. For it was then man be men began to call on the name of the Lord. To call upon here isn't just to call out or to cry out. The word is often translated in the Old Testament meaning to shout or to proclaim. And by that we might think that Enos means to shout or to proclaim. But it doesn't. Enos means frail, weak, or sick. We might think, how does that correlate to men crying out to God? Well, I think it correlates very well. It is man finally recognizing that he is frail and sick in his heart, and he's calling out to God for salvation. I also wanted to point out that narratively, it's interesting that Moses saves the um, information about Seth and Enos till after Lemek. 
it makes for quite a contrast between hearing of the boastfulness of Lemek, which means strong youth and warrior, and now we read of Enos, which means weak, frail, and sick. From the beginning, God has always used the weak and the foolish in appearance to show his own power. And God tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, 20, chapter 1, verses 27 through 29, God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. No tent Jabel could ever build can compare to the men who dwelt in the house of the Lord. No song Jubal could sing could match the joy and energy of the sons of God singing praise to the Lord of salvation. And no metal, to, uh, metal table tubal cane could forge was sharp as the sword of the Spirit or the Word of God. And what's more interesting, there's still more to note here, Seth and Enos, while there's a narrative contrast there between the boastfulness of Lemek and the, who is strong and Enos, who is named weak, they're not the same generation of, as Lemek. They probably lived well into Lemek's lifespan, but they are not Lemek's generation. So who was Lemek's generation? Who else lived or was born at the time of Lemek? Lemek was the seventh from Adam. And so it's interesting, this, Satan had his warrior poet, but God also had his own warrior, who was also the seventh from Adam. Seth also had his own Enoch. Enoch, we are told, walked with God. He walked so closely with God that God raptured, raptured him out of this world, so he never had to t uh, taste death. Enoch, we are told, was a preacher and a prophet in his day. He was a light for the gospel of those around him. And he lived at the same time, and was born around the same time, as Lemek, being the seventh generation. And so it's quite an amazing contrast between the two. Amidst the false worship of his day and the violence of Lemek and Cain's people, we are told by Jude that Enoch said this, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, perished about, uh, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. It's interesting how God, by his providence, often took the names of Cain's lineage and used them in Seth's lineage. We find, for just as a brief example, we find Erad, in the line of Cain, and Jerad, or Jared, in the line of Seth. We find Methusel in Cain's line, and Methuselah in God's line, or Seth's line. And not only did God have his own Enoch, but he also had his own Lemek. There are two Lemeks. There is Cain's Lemek, the boastful one, the warrior poet, with his genius children. But God also made a Lemek for Seth, who also had a genius child. Genesis 5.28 says, And Lemek lived a hundred eighty and two years and begat a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning the work and toil of our hands because the ground which the Lord has cursed. And so as 
Lemek had his own genius children, inventing metal in tents and herding and music. Noah also was genius in building an ark and preaching righteousness in his day. And we'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.